Hi, this is Pastor Curtis. I want to thank you for checking out the Family Church Podcast. I hope it encourages you and inspires you to take your next step of faith. You can find out more about how to do that at our website, familychurch.xyz. And if you know a friend who needs to hear this message, please forward it on to them. I hope you enjoy the message. And uh, real quick, shout out to Kyle for filling in. Did he kill it or what last week? I'm not worthy. No, he did an excellent job. In fact, I told Sue on the way back, I wonder if I'll have a job when I get back. So. But we are uh, continuing a series titled Time of Your Life. Would you please bring that water up for me? And uh, we've been looking at this idea. Thank you. Does she look good or what? <laughs> Just saying. We've been looking at this idea of time stewardship or how we can better utilize our time. And we've been using a verse from one of the Psalms as our launching point each week. And it's actually a prayer. This particular Psalm is a prayer. And it was a prayer by Moses. David wrote most of the Psalms, but Moses happened to write this one. And he prayed, this is interesting, he prayed that God would teach them, the nation of Israel, the people of God, to number their days which means, he said, teach us to live as if our days are numbered, because they are, because our days are numbered. And here's what he prayed in Psalm 90, verse 12. So teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. See, that's the end game. That's the end game there when we learn to number our days. Isn't that interesting? The reason that we should live our lives as if our days are numbered isn't so we'll be better organized, isn't so uh, uh, our days will be better planned out, this isn't about organization and planning. This is about wisdom. This is about wisdom, right? The reason we need to live our lives as if our days are numbered is so we'll make better decisions each day. Because anytime, listen, anytime we have more of something than we need, we tend to waste it. We don't set out to do that. That's just kind of human nature, and that's what we do. But if we live as if our days are numbered, that is, if we live in light of the reality that our lives have a specific beginning and ending point, we'll make better decisions. When we number our days, when we live our lives with the understanding that the bookends of our life aren't birth to death, but rather everlasting to everlasting, that's when we begin to see the large picture of life and understand that God has something so much bigger, so much greater than the, the trivial pursuits that we end up chasing in our own little itty-bitty short time that we have on this planet. Now, over the past couple of weeks, we've been talking about some specific principles as they relate to how we use our time. So this morning, we're going to talk about how we can get more accomplished in less time. Any takers on that? Anyone interested? How, how many would you like to get more accomplished in less time, right? Sure. So the big idea of this morning's message is simply this, how to accomplish more by doing less. And those of you who've uh, been attending family church for a while know that over the past year, 18 months, We've experienced some pretty amazing growth here at Family Church, which is good, which is good. I mean, numbers aren't everything, but they are important. After all, when it comes to church life, numbers represent people, people that Jesus Christ gave his life for. But it's not a given that a church is going to grow because a huge part of the health of a church flows through leadership. And once a church reaches a certain point, in growth, in order to continue that trajectory, 
it requires a little bit different approach to leadership. And honestly, just being real honest here, full disclosure, I didn't understand that for the longest time. That's why for the first 30 years, <laughs> took me a while to get this, for the first 30 years that I pastored here, we would grow, the church would grow to a certain point and plateau and then gradually begin shrinking. And as I think back over the past three decades, I don't recall exactly how many times this, this has happened, but there's no question that was a distinct cycle or pattern of this church. And even though I didn't recognize it at the time, that pattern was exposing both my strengths as well as my weaknesses as a leader and pastor. And through this process, here's what I've discovered. A weakness will always be a weakness compared to your strength, and a strength will always be a strength compared to your weakness. I didn't see anyone write that down. I thought that was pretty profound right there. You're developing, it basically comes down to this. Your developing strengths are far more valuable than your improved weaknesses. But the myth of leadership is that you have to be great at everything, that a leader has to be great at everything. And the truth is your strengths, the things that you're naturally gifted at, even as raw and undeveloped as they might be, are still more valuable than your weaknesses. In the sports arena, you sports fan, this is called playing to your strengths. Okay? And once we recognize that principle and begin to embrace it, then we'll be able to accomplish more by doing less. Not only that, not only will we accomplish more, we'll also enable or empower others to accomplish more. In fact, some of you probably have jobs where you wish your boss would figure out what he or she's good at and leave you alone and let you do what you do, right? You might, like, we're on, we're on camera. You might not want to raise your hand there. Your boss might see that. So we're going to look at a story in the Bible where this time principle of less equals more is demonstrated. And coincidentally, the context for this lesson is actually found in a story that many of you are familiar with. It's the story of Moses. Now, most of us have heard of Moses. His claim to fame was that he was the one that God sent to Pharaoh and said, let my people go over and over, and Pharaoh said no, over and over, and then there were all these plagues, frogs and gnats and locusts and blood and lions and tigers and bears, oh my, and finally, finally, Pharaoh said okay. So Moses led the people, and we, we don't know ex exactly how many, but most theologians, archaeological, archaeological experts say that maybe could be as many as two million people, Right? Some say one, some say three. So let's, let's, let's meet in the middle there. Two, probably minimum two million people, okay, that Moses led out of Egypt. Let that sink in. Two million men, women, and children, okay? Now, just for some perspective, the population of greater Kansas City area, which includes counties on both sides of the state line, is just a little over two million. So almost overnight, think about this. Almost overnight, Moses goes from babysitting flocks of maybe hundreds of sheep to leading a group of two million people, right? Men, women, and children out of Egypt where they had worked as slaves and been in bondage to Pharaoh for over 400 years, which means, watch this, which means they had no government, they had no systems, no organization. Their whole way of thinking was slavery. That's all they thought. Because for 400 years, they lived in bondage and they were told what to do. They didn't need a government, right? So Moses, with a little help from God, leads two million Hebrews into a life that they had never known before, a life of freedom. They're, they're set free from a life of slavery 
but they have no organization, no social structure, really. And so here's a couple million people following Moses out in the Sinai Desert. And get this, Moses isn't their king. He's not their king. He's not a governor. He's not even a mayor. No one elected Moses to anything. He was just the guy that said, let my people go, right? And the next thing you know, he's out in front leading 2 million people with a slavery mindset through the desert with no organization, no structure, and seemingly no plan. So fast forward about four months. They're out in the desert. They come to the foot of Mount Sinai where in a few days Moses would go up and get the Ten Commandments. But they come to Mount Sinai and they set up camp waiting to see what's going to happen next. And it was during this time that Moses' father-in-law, Jethro, shows up. And I'm sorry, but I'm a baby boomer. I grew up watching Beverly Hillbillies. And for the life of me, I cannot see or hear that name, Jethro, without thinking of Jethro Bodine. So pray for me that God would deliver me from that stereotype. Anyway, apparently, when Moses went back to Egypt and told Pharaoh, let my people go, he must have left his wife and kids on the backside of the desert with her family. So Jethro brings Moses' wife, Zipporah, and their kids to see Moses now that they're out, now that they're set free from Egypt and out in the desert. Now here's where our story begins. Exodus 18, verse 7. So Moses went out to meet his father-in-law and bowed down and kissed him. Just like all you guys do when you go visit your father-in-law, right? Y'all bow down and kiss your father-in-law, don't you? Anyone do that? Oh, well, we, we did that once. We maybe did that once when we were asking for their daughter's hand in marriage. We bowed down. We sucked up to them. We said yes, sir, and no, sir. And then after we married them, it was all downhill from there, right? Let's continue. All right. Verse 18. Moses told his father-in-law about everything the Lord had done to Pharaoh and, and the Egyptians for Israel's sake and about all the hardships they had met along the way and how the Lord had saved them. So Moses greets his father-in-law with his family, his wife and kids. They probably go into the tent. They have dinner together. Moses gets them kind of caught up on everything because, you know, they had heard that the people had been set free, but they didn't know about probably all the miracles. And maybe they heard about them, you know, the, the plagues and the parting of the Red Sea and all that. So Moses gets them caught up on that. Then they go to bed and they get up the next morning. Now, here's where the story kind of picks up some steam. Let's read on in verse 13. The next day Moses took his seat to serve as judge, and they stood around him from morning till evening. So, at this point, we see how Moses had apparently taken on the role of being a judge for the people, which is understandable, right? I mean, they didn't have any laws or governing guidelines that they could look to, so they looked to Moses, Mr. Let My People Go. After all, he's the reason they're out there in the wilderness in the first place, right? So, in Moses' mind and in the people's mind, this was kind of Moses' job description, right? To be a mediator or a judge. But because of the large number of people, remember we're talking about millions of people here, it led to long lines of people standing around, in some instances from morning till evening, the Bible says, waiting to have Moses hear their case and make a ruling. Can you imagine what that looked like? I mean, even within your own family, how many times do you have to intervene and be mediator, right? with your kids or whoever, right? Imagine what that looked like for Moses. Two million people. Think anyone had any gripes for Moses, right, among a group that large? And they all come to Moses. Moses, he stole my donkey. Moses, he ran over my chicken with a chariot. It wasn't your chicken. Yes, it was my chicken. And on, Moses, they came over and stole water out of my well. And on and on and on and on. 
Can you imagine that, right? Everybody with a dispute lines up to come to Moses to air their gripe and complaint because Moses is the judge, so he's got to sort all this stuff out. Let's continue, verse 14. When his father-in-law, Jethro, saw all that Moses was doing for the people, he said, what is this you're doing for the people? So apparently Jethro's standing by watching this play out, this long line of people with gripes and complaints coming to Moses for justice, and this went on from morning till evening, it says. Finally, finally Jethro's seen enough, and he calls Moses out. Moses, what are you doing? You're going to kill yourself. You can't continue doing this. The thing is, now watch this, Moses thought he was doing exactly what he should be doing. But his father-in-law thought Moses was doing exactly what he shouldn't be doing, which only confirms what we all know anyway. Workaholics are always able to justify what they're doing, right? Which I'm sure is exactly what Moses did here. In Moses' way of thinking, he was the only one qualified to do what he was doing. After all, he was the voice of authority. He was the only educated or, or certainly the most educated person there raised in the house of Pharaoh. I'm sure Moses thought, hey, I'm the best decision maker. Nobody can do this as good as me, so I've got to do it. Let's read on, verse 14. Jethro says, why do you alone sit as judge while all these people stand around you from morning till evening? And then look at Moses' answer to Jethro, verse 15. Moses answered him, because the people come to me to seek God's will. In other words, someone's got to do this. Someone's got to do this. How many of you ever have ever taken on extra task at work or in some scenario because someone's got to do it, right? Sure. Verse 16. Whenever they have a dispute, it is brought to me and I decide between the parties, and I inform them of God's two key words here, decrees and instructions. Look at that. So not only is Moses making rulings and decisions and being arbiter, serving as arbiter, he's also trying to be a teacher, trying to teach them God's decrees and instructions. Let's continue, verse 17. Moses' father-in-law replied, now watch this next statement, what you are doing is not good. Notice Jethro doesn't call him out on how he's doing it. He flat out tells him, this isn't your job, Moses. This is not your job. You shouldn't be doing this. God didn't spend 40 years of training you on the backside of the desert so you could rule on whether or not someone's donkey was stolen or someone's chariot ran over a chicken. or someone's No, no, that, that's not what God trained you for, Moses, right? Let's read on, verse 18. You, see, you, you and these people, see that both parties are impacted by what Moses was doing here. You and these people who come to you will only wear yourselves out. The work is too heavy for you. You cannot handle it alone. In other words, Moses, you're not just wearing yourself out. You're wearing them out too. Right? What you're doing now, Moses, is a lose-lose. They're mad because they have to stand in line, and then they come back and try and get in line the next day. You're worn out, and, and every decision you make gets worse. The longer the day wears on, Moses, your decisions are going to get worse and worse because you're tired, you're, you're fatigued. Right? It's just a lose-lose situation, Moses. So Moses made a classic leadership blunder here. He took on a role that distracted him from his primary responsibility. What was his primary responsibility? We'll get back to that in just a second. The point to be made here is simply that by taking on responsibility that was outside of his skill set, Moses was actually making things worse. 
were worse because of what he was doing. And sadly, see, this happens all the time. Sometimes it happens out of necessity because if something needs to be done and no one is doing it, someone's got to do it, right? And the longer we do this, and you know this, the easier it is to keep doing it. And the thing is, it's deceptive because we can actually make it work for a while. But what happens is over time, if you stay focused on that specific task, it will pull you out of the role that you're not only more suited for, but uniquely gifted for. And see, we don't recognize that component. So whenever you're drawn to a task and you think, hey, I'm the only person that can do this because no one else is qualified, here's what you need to do. You need to pause, take a deep breath, Say, now, wait a minute, where's this coming from? You know, sometimes we get drawn into these things, these time-consuming tasks because we think that we're the only ones. Sometimes we do it because we really are the only ones. But see, even that, look at this, even that exposes a failure on our part, the fact that we failed to raise up leaders who could do that task or do those tasks. See, this is exactly where Moses was at in our story. And as a result, not only did he suffer, the entire nation suffered. Let's read on. Next verse, verse 19. Here, now here Jethro kind of goes into a consultant mode. Listen to what he tells Moses, his do-it-all son-in-law. Listen now to me, and I will give you some advice. And then this, this next little phrase, if you, if you understand the translation, he's kind of getting a, a, a jab or a dig in at Moses. He says, um, and may God be with you. Literal translation, I hope you're smart enough to figure this out, son. You better figure this out. So read between the lines, and here's what, here's what Jethro was telling Moses in this verse. Son, I realized that when you invited me to come to work with you today, you thought I was going to stand over here to the side and admire how good of a job that you're doing and watch you prove to me how well my daughter did by marrying you. Because, man, you're the man. I mean, look at these people. I, I can't even see the end of the line. There's so many people there. I know, Moses, when we came today, you were trying to impress me. Wow, look at this guy. He's important. And while Moses is making all these decisions about stolen donkeys and roadkill chickens and water being stolen and so forth, Jethro's standing over there thinking, OMG, what a moron. I don't know if he's thinking that, but he, he is. He's like, what is this guy doing? What is this guy doing? He needs to go back to tending my flocks on the backside of the desert. Actually, we don't know what he said, but... I bet he was thinking that. Here's what we do know. Jethro does give Moses some advice, and here's where we're told what Moses' job description was, the thing that he was uniquely gifted for by God. Then in this next statement, Jethro tells us what Moses' job was. You must be the people's representative before God and bring their disputes to him. So Moses' job description was not to be a judge. He was to represent the people before God. In other words, Jethro, tell, he tells Moses, look, out of all these people, you're the only one that can go to God on behalf of the whole nation. In other words, Moses, you're a priest, not a judge. You need to take off the judge robe and put on a priestly robe, right? And sure enough, if you follow the story of Moses, you'll see time and time again later on that he does he does just that. He represents the people before God. You know, the Israelites would screw up and God wanted to kill them. And Moses would go, God, please don't kill them. They didn't mean it. They're sorry. And God says, okay, I won't kill all of them. But you know how it goes. God did represent the people before God. He was the only one who could go to God on behalf of the people. So Jethro continues, verse 20, teach them his decrees and instructions and show them the way they are to live and how they are to behave. In other words, 
You're to re represent them to God and you are to teach them his decrees and instructions. So Moses, this is your wheelhouse. This is your lane that you need to stay in. Your job description is twofold. First, you need to represent the people to God. Got it? Got that, Moses? Represent the people to God. And second, you need to teach them his decrees and show them the way that they're to live and how they're to behave. I was like, okay, God, I'll tell you, teach them. I, I need to represent the people for God. I need to teach them your decrees. Okay, what else? What else? Jethro? That's it. That's it, Moses. Those two things. That's all you're supposed to do. You mean that's all I'm supposed to do? That's it. Those are your strengths. You need to play to those, Moses, because even if you're the best judge in town, you're going to kill yourself and you're going to frustrate the people. And it's interesting because Jethro doesn't specifically answer this concern of Moses, which is his way of telling Moses, you need to figure it out, son. Otherwise, you're going to burn out. You need to reprioritize, take some time away from being the judge, and train people to do what only they can do so that you can do what only you can do. Because if they do what only they can do and you do what only you can do, everything gets done. I didn't see anyone write that down either. I thought that was a pretty profound quote. See? So Jethro gives him a plan. Verse 21. Select capable men from all the people, men who fear God, trustworthy men who hate dishonest gain, and appoint them as officials over thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. Now, at this point, I know what Moses is thinking. He's thinking the same thing that you and I would be thinking at this point. When am I going to have time to do that? When am I going to have the time to train people to do this, right? When am I going to have time to put these systems in place? Verse 22, have them serve as judges for the people at all times, but have them bring every difficult case to you. The simple cases they can decide themselves, that will make your load lighter because they will share it with you. In other words, Moses, you're going to train judges instead of being the judge, but on those big cases, if anything ever happens that could potentially cause a riot and divide the nation, then you go ahead and take some time to rule on those. But all these other petty little you know, chicken run over, donkey stolen, water, all that kind of stuff. No, 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 no. You delegate that out to these judges that you're going to train, right? Now, this next verse is important because it reveals a trait in Moses that really made him such a great leader. So great, right, that we're talking about him 2,000 years later, right? And this trait is crucial to our success as leaders at whatever level of influence we might have because we all have some realm of influence. Verse 24, watch this. Moses listened to his father-in-law and he did everything he said. Now, this is pretty interesting because right here would have been a great place for Moses to gracefully or maybe not so gracefully tell his father to butt out. Mind your own beeswax, Jethro. I mean, who, who are you? You know, you, you, what's your resume? A shepherd out in the desert, right? I mean, you know, you, you know who I am? I'm the one that went to Pharaoh. I'm the one that said, let my people go. I'm the one that's leading two million. What, what are you, you're still babysitting flocks of sheep on the desert, and you're trying to tell me what to do, right? Question, be honest. Have you ever gotten bowed up when someone tried to tell you what to do? Oh, come on, come on. Sure. I mean, even constructive criticism is hard to receive, isn't it? We all bow up when someone tries to tell us how to do our job, right? But here's this trait that made Moses such a, such a wonderful leader that we're talking about him thousands of years later. He was teachable. 
Moses was teachable. Verse 25, he chose capable men from all Israel and made them leaders of the people, officials, officials over thousands, hundreds, fifties, and tens. Verse 26, they served as judges for the people at all times, the difficult cases they brought to Moses, but the simple ones they decided themselves. And then here's how our story ends in verse 27. Then Moses sent his father-in-law on his way and Jethro returned to his own country. So Moses figured out how to replace himself and in so doing discovered the leadership principle of when less is more. Now, here's what I don't want you to hear today. I don't want you to hear that the moral of the story is learn to be a better delegator. That's not the moral of the story. The moral of the story, the takeaway for us, because even though we might never lead two million people, still we all, every single one of us have some level of influence and we're all leaders in some capacity. But the takeaway is this. When it comes to time and our respective jobs and responsibilities, the only way we'll begin to discover how less is more is by embracing these four things. Number one, only do what you can do. Only do what you can do. You've got to discover and figure out your unique gifting, what you best contribute to your job, your department, your team, your organization. You have to figure out what your strengths are. What are those one or two, and it's it's only going to be two or three at the most, right? But what are those one, two, or three things that you do best in that situation and environment? Figure out how to lean into your strengths because that's where you bring the greatest value to what you're doing in that realm of leadership, right? And just FYI, the easiest way to discover what your gifts are, if you want to know what you're good at, is you got to first figure out what you're not good at and begin to eliminate those things from your daily schedule. And if you're not sure what you're not good at, ask a coworker. <laughs> I'm just being honest. Other people see it. Other people can see what you're not good at. I mean, be prepared. All right, be prepared, but be humble about it, but be prepared. Because if you need to know what you're not good at, ask someone and they will tell you what you're not good at. The second thing is identify the areas where you make the biggest or greatest contribution. And again, there's only going to be two or three of these, right? Two or three things that if you get those right, it's all good. But if you get them wrong, man, it's just it, there's going to be trouble no matter how well you take care of those other four or five or six things, okay? Identify the areas, those two or three areas where you make the biggest or the greatest contribution. Third thing, give your best time to what makes your biggest impact. This kind of goes back to that illustration. Remember we put the, putting the, rock, the big rocks in the jar first, priorities. Remember that a couple weeks ago where I had that illustration? where I almost broke the jars, right? It kind of goes back to that that principle, right? Give your best time to what makes your biggest impact. In other words, it's talking about priority there. And then number four, you have to develop other leaders. And this right here is where I had fallen short as the leader and the pastor of this church. The thing is, it's sort of a vicious cycle because in small churches, it's so easy to justify doing so many things because things need to get done. And someone's got to do them right? And honestly, I'll be honest, Kyle's the one that kind of pointed this out to me, how I, I need to learn to start saying no occasionally, right? And start teaching and training other people to decide on who stole the donkey or who ran over the chicken, okay? Now, in closing, let me just say this. God created you better at some things than others. And when you take people who are good at some things and not so good at others and put them with people that are good at other things, when you put all those things together, man, it's amazing what can get done. 
It's amazing what can happen. Author Jim Collins in his book, Good to Great, made this statement. He said, if we get the right people on the bus, the right people in the right seats, and the wrong people off the bus, then we'll figure out how to make, make time. We'll figure out how to take it someplace great. Having driven a school bus for over 30 years, 29 and a half here, and then a couple when I was working on my undergraduate degree, I drove a school bus for that district. But uh, I, I can really relate to this statement. It's a different context, but the principle holds true. Because, see, there were certain kids that I wouldn't let sit next to other kids because it just made for not a very good bus ride. I had to make sure that the right, not just that the right kids were on the bus, I had to make sure that the right kids were in the right seat on the bus to make that trip as enjoyable as possible, right? See, that's the purpose of our next classes. Coming to family church is kind of getting on the bus. The next class is making sure you find the right seat on the bus, right? That's why we're committed to helping you take your next step by offering these next classes once a month because that will help you discover or at least begin to dial in the right seat, what your strengths are and how God wants to use those strengths for his purpose and for your fulfillment. So my parting shot is simply this. If you haven't attended one of our next classes, I would strongly encourage you to do so. We talk about that, knowing God, finding freedom, discovering purpose, and making a difference. We offer those once a month. I think Kyle said the next one's going to be, we're trying to get back in a cycle where it'll be the last Sunday of the month. So right now, we're planning on February 28th, and I encourage you to attend that. And re look, regardless of how religious you are, or even if you don't even consider yourself to be a Christian, or maybe not, you're still trying to figure all this out, right? Here's what you need to know. When you begin to lean into the thing that God designed you to do, listen to me, you'll be working in sync with the God who created you. And I'll be honest, there are few things as exciting, as energizing, and as fulfilling than finally figuring out why I was created in the first place. Right? You've heard this before, and you're going to continue to hear it until Jesus comes back or until Jesus takes you or me home. But the two most important days of your life are the day that you were created and the day you find out why. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, by the power of your Holy Spirit, please show each one of us what you wanted to teach us from this message. Whatever level of influence that we might have, because we're all leaders at some level, please show us where we need to make adjustments in our lives, in our daily schedules, at our jobs, at school, even in our marriage and family, so that we'll be able to get more accomplished in less time by doing things your way. Help us begin doing what only we can do. Help us identify those areas where we are uniquely gifted by you and where we can make the biggest difference. And having identified those areas, help us begin devoting more of our time to those different areas. And then finally, help us begin to develop other leaders, those who are gifted for those tasks that sidetrack us and lead to frustration and discontentment at whatever level of influence we might have. But most importantly, help us, Lord, help us to, like Moses, be teachable. Because if we're not teachable, all the advice in the world won't make any difference. And if you're here this morning or watching online our eCampus Church, Family Church at Home, and you'd like to get to know God, the God who created you with your unique gifts and talents, and invites you to call him Heavenly Father, if that's you, it would be my pleasure to lead you into a personal relationship with him through his son, Jesus Christ. If you'd just be willing to pray this simple prayer with me, say, Lord Jesus, 
I do want to get to know you more. I want to experience that eternal and abundant life that you promised us. So please forgive me for my sins, those things I've done and said that have not only hurt others, but hurt you as well. And today, right now, I invite Jesus Christ to come into my heart, to live inside of me by his Holy Spirit, and help me begin to not just live my life for him, but also discover why I was created in the first place. In Jesus' name, amen.